Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to tell you a little bit about one of our supporting partners, Stashed Products, who make the best garage upgrade that I have ever had. The Stash Space Rail is the answer to all your bike storage woes. It's basically a ceiling-mounted wardrobe rail for your bikes, which means you can store your bikes really close together in a compact space, but you just slide the bikes across until you get to the one that you want, and then you can easily lift it out. The Space Rail is a modular rail system that will allow you to hold between 1 and 24 bikes, depending on how many rail sections and hooks you buy. For me and the family, I've put in an 8-bike kit, and when I fitted it, the first thing that my wife said was, wow, they take up way less space. That's because the Stash Space Rail has a hook for each bike, which can be spun 360 degrees and stood along the rail. That means you can spin every other bike through 180 degrees, so the handlebars are out of the way of each other, and slide them up really close. Whichever bike you want to get, it's super easy. You just slide the rest out of the way and grab it down. The system is universal and works for all bikes up to a three inch tire. The space rail is really well designed and made, meaning it should last you a lifetime and it's super easy to fit. It took me about two hours to fit mine, but if your garage ceiling joists are exposed, then I think you could easily do it in less than an hour. So if you want convenient, easy to access, yet still space saving bike storage, then the Stash Space Rail is the one for you. Because it's so good, it is in insane demand right now. So there aren't any discounts floating about, but we do have something special for downtime listeners. If you spend £200 or more on a space rail system, then downtime listeners get a free set of pedal wraps in your choice of size or a pedal wrap clip or a stash beanie worth up to £20. Just add your choice from those three to your cart and use the code downtime at the checkout. You've got until the end of February to make the most of that code. And if you want to save more, then there's currently free global shipping on all systems over £250 until the end of January 2023. Check them out over at stashedproducts.co.uk. That's S-T-A-S-H-E-D products.co.uk and use the code downtime to get your free pedal wraps, clip or beanie. Before we get stuck into this week's episode, here are a few ways that you can support the podcast. Downtime t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies are available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. If, like I do, you've got a soft spot for print, then for just £20, you can subscribe to our biannual mountain bike journal, Downtime EP. Made in collaboration with the incredible team over at Miss Spent Summers, Downtime EP takes the topics and themes from the podcast and brings them into a stunning print format, featuring mountain biking's most talented writers and photographers. You can subscribe over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. If you want a little bit more downtime in your life, you can join my newsletter where I'll provide you with a bit of behind the scenes info from the podcast, interesting bits and pieces from around the mountain bike world, some mini reviews of products that I've been using and like, partner offers and much more. You can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Otherwise, don't forget to follow the podcast and make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the button in your podcast app or there's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. If you've done all that, also, it'd be great if you can give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook too, where we're at Downtime Podcast. All the links you need for all of that are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Mountain bike skills coaching is becoming more and more common, which is largely due to the work of organisations like the Professional Mountain Bike Instructors Association, or PMBIA, who provide a global standard for training and certifying mountain bike instructors. There was a time where this type of training wasn't available, and it was a little company in Whistler called ZEP that helped get it started. ZEP Mountain Bike Camps are supporting this episode of the podcast and are providing high-quality mountain bike coaching in the mecca of mountain biking that is Whistler and Okanagan. 
Young or old, advanced or a complete beginner, ZEP have a crew of PMBIA qualified coaches who will help you reach your goals. You can find out everything you need to know over at zepmtbcamps.com. Today I'm joined by their founder, Paul Howard. Paul has an incredible story of creating his career in mountain biking through coaching, setting up both the PMBIA, which is now the largest provider of mountain bike instructor training courses anywhere in the world, and ZEP mountain bike camps. We sat down to hear about Paul's journey and to pick his brains on how we can use some basic skills drills to improve our performance on the trails. So while the weather might not be great and trail conditions can be far from perfect, here are some great practical tips for you to get better on your bike, pretty much just in your driveway. There's plenty to learn here and Paul's got loads more tips if you like this and want some more. So without further ado, here's Paul Howard. Paul Howard, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you, man? Good man, yeah. Just uh, in Australia, and um, just getting back to real life after Christmas and New Year's, and uh, yeah, things are great. Good stuff. Well, we're obviously going to really try and get stuck into helping the audience improve their riding skills this off season. But before we do that, um, I'm keen to get a bit of your background because it's a really interesting path that you've taken. Um, I think you grew up in the UK. You now live in Whistler. Today you're in Australia. You're obviously traveling the world, teaching people how to teach other people to ride bikes. Um, but let's start from the early days. Just tell us a little bit about like where you grew up and and how mountain biking became a part of your life. Yeah, man. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, first off, but um, yeah, to get into it, I grew up in the UK uh, in Brighton. Got to got to drop the T in Brighton. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I started, started mountain biking in the early nineties with my mates and just, just kind of fell into, fell into that sport and just, just loved it. Just grew up riding in Stammer Park and on the South Downs and it just became my, you know, my passion at a pretty early age and yeah, I had a lot of fun, did a bit of racing as a, as for fun as a kid as well and with my mates and then um it was kind of at university actually i was i was studying um genetics believe it or not at, at ucl in london and during the summers i got a job um just on a summer camp in north carolina teaching mountain biking and and i guess so long story short that's where kind of i guess my life path kind of changed and um that's where my eyes were open just to sort of the outdoor industry out there and um, yeah, so I, I taught mountain biking there and, and developed some teaching programs, trained instructors, and it, it quickly became, um, my focus for the next few years of where do I want to kind of take my life? So yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's it in a nutshell, but yeah, I grew up in the UK and, and started teaching in, in the U S and then, and then when I finished university, I kind of, cause originally I was thinking I was kind of I wasn't sure so I was like because all my family are doctors so I was kind of going down that road because I didn't really know what I wanted to do and then I discovered the outdoor industry and teaching biking so after I finished my degree I kind of said to myself like well let's let's give you know three years I'll give myself three years and see if I can make uh, some kind of living out of it or dig into it or, or figure out what I can do. And if all else fails, I guess I, you know, I have a plan B, I have a backup and, and, uh, that was 20 something years ago and I'm still <laughs> riding around the woods on bikes and, and in the winter I 
uh, teaching snowboarding. So yeah, I never kind of looked back and that was that. Was that a tricky decision to make? Because I, I'm guessing like certainly in a lot of people's minds, not in ours probably, but like doctor probably sits higher than bumming around in the woods as on the kind of career <laughs> scale. Like did yeah. you feel a pressure from family or like externally to follow that? that side of things especially because you've gone as far as doing a degree in in genetics yeah not not really i mean to answer the question like it was a really easy decision because those summers during university i was you know i'd go back to uni in london and i'd be the only one that like traveled all summer had an amazing summer like working in the u.s but then i'd actually go back to university with a bit of money as Uh opposed to like everyone else that like stayed in the UK all summer. Maybe they got a job in a pub or something, but just partied all summer and then we'd go back to uni in more debt. <laughs> so I was, that's, you know, for me, it was like, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to ride my bike. Like it was, I wasn't getting paid much. Like it was chump change really, but it was enough to kind of get me through the summer. And for me, it was an easy one. I was like, wow, just that dream, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's like, what a dream that would be if I could figure out a way to carve a living out of coaching and out of mountain biking. And, um, you know, I kind of said like, well, I'll, I'll have a time limit. If it doesn't work out, I'll, I can go do something else. But I think the fear of failure just, just didn't let me give up. I just, I couldn't, once I kind of got a taste of it, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. So it was, to me, there wasn't another option. It was just like, this is what I'm going to do. Like I found my, I found my thing, you know, I found my niche. Yeah. This is, this is me. And that's, and I just kind of jumped in a hundred percent. Good work. How did you find the North Carolina job then? Where did you see that advertised? It, it was through like, I mean, this was like late nineties. So it was at the time it was like PUNAC, like the British universities, North America. I can't even remember the acronym, but anyway, they, they organized like university students to do like student exchange visas in the Uh summer to go work on in basically to go work in the States for the summer. And it was just through that. And I saw this random box of like mountain bike coach wanted. I didn't even know that was a thing and it wasn't really a thing to be honest, but I was like, I applied for the job, met the owner of the camp and sort of the rest is history as they say. And then, and then I I rocked up and it was, I mean, (laughs) it was, there was i mean it was a bit of a nightmare the the trails were a mess the bikes were a mess no one (laughs) that had run the program before really knew how to teach biking so i kind of just fully jumped into this like deep end and at the time there weren't even programs for mountain bike instructors really there was the odd one here or there but it wasn't a defined industry um so really we just started like literally started with a blank sheet of paper like we we built a bunch of trails. We developed teaching programs, and um, and yeah, and and just everything just grew from that. Amazing. So, how do you get from from working for that team there then to kind of doing your own thing and ultimately like pulling together PMBIA, which I, I think we should probably talk about because it's a pretty significant part of what you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I. I mean, when I graduated, I, I kind of, like I said, I sort of decided to try and make a, a living out of it. So I had the summer stuff dialed and I, 
in the after I finished uni, I was like, if I could do the same kind of thing in the winters, but with snowboarding, then that's potentially my career path. I could uh-huh. teach snowboarding in the winter, teach mountain biking in the summer, and and that's my job, for lack of a better term. Um, so obviously, the place to go was Whistler. I mean, it was kind of a no no brainer. So um, as soon as I could, you know, I I moved out to Canada and. <clears throat> started teaching snowboarding there and um started started trying to it was really until i got my residency so once i got my residency um i started my own coaching company and um you know before then like i'd i'd worked in north carolina but then i'd i'd helped guide and work for like walker in whistler and then some other operations in in whistler like cross-country connection and so i still kept kind of building my skills and then eventually well, after I got my residency I, I set up ZEP and and turned everything I'd sort of worked on the last sort of the previous six seven years into ZEP and and then started teaching uh, and coaching and then that's where we also started to offer the, the PMBI instructor courses in Whistler and that was like 2006 seven like around uh-huh. then and and then um, it all just sort of blew up from that. Like um, PMBI quickly grew. I think the first year we ran two courses with like two level one instructor courses with like, I think there was three or four people in each course, you know? Um, and then like 2022, we ran 300 courses, trained nearly 2000 instructors like in over 11 countries. So it's, it's, it's just crazy from sort of where we started and, and where it's grown now, I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's amazing to look back at it and, and Just, see where um, it's come. Yeah, explain what PMBI, PMBIA stands for and then kind of what it's set out to achieve, I guess, just so people have got a clear picture of that. Yeah, sure, man. Well, f- for like when I started ZEP and like before then, I wanted to get certified because um, I'd been, te- you know, at that point I'd been teaching mountain biking for a while and developed these programs, but... Like I didn't really have any certificate or paperwork to show it. And I, I wanted to sort of get legitimized and to continue my learning. And I did some research. I did a course, like an old advanced skills instructor course from OTC in the UK and then did one in Amer- America, which was a one-day thing, which was basically just a joke, so it's not even worth mentioning. <laughs> then did, a, did another one in Canada. And every kind of course I did was just really underwhelming and so that was kind of the inspiration behind zap and initially was just to start a higher quality coaching company and then Mm -hmm. the whole goal behind pmbi was to do the instructor training side of it um so the pmbia is the professional mountain bike instructors association and okay it's a member-based organization um our home base is whistler in bc but we we train instructors um all around the world and and now we're the industry leader for for mountain bike instructor training all around the world and really the goal of pmbi is uh, of our association is pretty simple like we we just want to get more people on bikes through better instructors um which you know and our job as an organization is to create high quality more consistent training standards for those instructors so that that's that's the PMBIA story. And really we're just a bunch of crazy mountain bikers that are just super passionate about it and, and passionate about 
um, I never like this word, but it's a funny word, like pedagogy, which is really just training people how to teach and understanding that you know, everything we do in PMBI comes from an understanding that teaching is an art and it's a complex craft in its own right. And it, you know, in that sense, it's just like riding a bike. It takes years and years to really master that craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's sort of the group of people behind PMBIA and our, our course conductors or our tech committee or our board of directors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, that's it. It's humble beginnings in Whistler in BC. And, and now, you know, I'm like you said at the start, like I'm in Australia right now, just done a bunch of staff training for our course conductors over here and running, running a whole ton of courses in Australia. Good work, man. So how many, how many qualified instructors now form that association? Um, well, within the organization, we have about 60 course conductors worldwide and mm-hmm. they're the people, the, the boys and girls that go out and, and run the, te- run the instructor, um, courses. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the amount of members that we have in the organization, um, I think last year our active membership based was, was nearly 3000. Um, but then there's a lot of inactive members as well, but our average sort of, you know, uh, we, we train between about 1,500 to 2,000 instructors every year. So if you think like PMBI originally started in, what was it, around 2006, seven, and then we turned into an association in 2015. So uh, we've been in a, an association for the last seven, seven, eight years. So it's, yeah, it's a it's a long time now and it's a, it's a lot of instructors for, for the mountain bike space. So it's, it's yeah. It's cool. Yeah, very cool. So you you obviously spent a lot of time kind of digging into coaching both the kind of um, the art of teaching and learning, like you say, patagogy, mm-hmm. um, but also in the, the skills side, like how to ride properly um, yeah. and how to teach that. Like how do you personally view the state of coaching in the mountain bike world in general right now? Because like, as much as PMBI is there, not everyone's using it, right? Not every course you go on is going to have a PMBI qualified instructor. Yeah, totally. Like I think it's, um, I mean, the state of coaching right now is it's really cool because it's, it's better than it ever has been. Um, I always remember like back in the day, like it was a challenge just to get people to even realize that coaching was an option. So I always say like, before you can get people to take lessons, like they kind of first need to realize that a, that's even an option in the first place. Like mountain bike coaches are a, are a thing that can help you with your skills. And then be like, you're beyond that. You then need to get them to realize like that that's an option worth taking. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's worth digging out your wallet and getting some cash and investing into some, skills coaching um so i think right now we're 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 at a point where for the first time more and more mountain bikers are aware that you can get skills coaching and then beyond that they're they're starting to realize the value in it um there's still a long way to go like i still think we can raise the profile of skills coaching and um and raise the awareness of how how valuable it can be. Like, I, I still think we've got a fair way to go, but I mean, I'm, I'm in Australia right now. And every time I come back, I, I usually come out most years, um, 
you just, you just, it's kind of like when you're, I don't know, if you have like a niece or a nephew and you don't see them for a year and then you come back and they're like, you know, a foot taller and you're like, holy cow. <laughs> um, it's sort of the same for like when I travel around to different places, you go back and you see like the local networks. It's like, whoa, there's way more riders or there's more coaching companies. Like there's more coaching companies and operators that than I've ever seen in Australia. Um, and the, the buzz around coaching and skills coaching and is, is huge right now. And it's, it's healthier than it's ever been. And, it, and it, you know, you can cut and paste that for Canada and UK and, um, and America. It's just Chile, Argentina. Like it, it's just going off everywhere. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting to see kind of ho- higher profile riders, doing a bit more coaching stuff as well. I interviewed Camille Boulange recently and she mentioned she's got a coach she's working with this winter, like yeah. just digging into some of the skills-based stuff and like cornering was something uh, like kind of bike park style corners. She she had recognized as a weakness and was, was actively working on that with a coach. It's nice to hear like top level riders talking about doing that and getting benefits from it. Cause I think a lot of people certainly at the high level don't see necessarily coaching is something they can benefit from like they already know how to do it but i guess everyone can right yeah absolutely like i mean you kind of hit the nail on the head like i mean that's one of the big messages we've been trying to get out there for a long time now is it's skills coaching isn't just for the the beginner and it's actually it's the same in the winter industry too right like it's everyone gets a snowboard lesson for the first couple of days and then as soon as they can turn down a green run they think they're like Sean White or something that they think they're a master <laughs> and you're like, Oh my God, you've still got so much to learn. Um, and yeah, and it's no different on a mountain bike. Like, uh, it's, it's really good to hear and see pros starting to get that coach in and specifically re- as it relates to skills and, and technique. Um, cause they, you know, if you can, if you think about it, like mountain biking is still a pretty young sport, really, especially that, that um, when you compare it to something like ski racing or downhill ski racing and you look at different sports and like the level of coaching, it's, it's, it's huge, right? Like there's, there's world cup coaches in skiing that are doing basic skill drills all the time just to build that muscle memory. And, um, and then they might be doing a very similar drill that you might teach, I don't know, a, a novice intermediate skier, but they're just doing it at a, faster speed or a higher intensity or they're doing it for a different reason they're doing it to create to to sort of build their reflex patterns um and that's where i think there's there's still a lot of room in the mountain bike space for higher level riders to get skills coaching and and you know as a as someone that's coached mountain biking for you know over 20 years now like when i chat to my mates my other my friends that are other coaches like you know we'll 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 watch a world cup and you can't help it, but you, but analyze everyone's <laughs> riding, right? Like you, you don't mean to do it, but you can't help it. So like we're constantly watching XC or downhill world cups and looking at riders going, oh, man, I'd love to spend a day with that rider and get them <laughs> to think about this or that. And that's what a good coach does, right? Like I'm, I'm not about to rock up at a world cup and beat, you know, Blanky or Valley or someone like they're all going to smoke me, but, I can see their writing and find things to find little technical deficiencies that if they worked on they'd they'd get, they'd squeeze out that extra, you know, 
half percent and you add up all those little half percentages and it, it actually creates a pretty good outcome and and uh, yeah. maybe that now all of a sudden they're getting two seconds faster every lap well especially yeah. now the winning margins are so small like everyone would take like even point something of a second on yeah. a track these days so yeah yeah well exactly yeah for sure and i think that's where you can you can make the argument for coach skills coaching and technique coaching even more these days because the, it's the competition is tighter and higher than ever so everyone's looking for that last little piece of the puzzle so yeah when people are thinking about like you know should i get some coaching it's you know often i'll say like well why wouldn't you why wouldn't you try it like what have you really got to lose um you know it's it's quite common like every summer will you you'll like you'll get some client that maybe they're an intermediate or or strong advanced rider and they're like you know i've been riding for 15 years 20 years or they've been racing enduros or this and that and it will be one of their first coaching sessions and guaranteed every summer you get a client like that and then they're like holy cow i've learned more in (laughs) two hours or this has improved my riding way more than anything in the last three years and they've they've just spent like eight grand on a brand new bike hoping it would improve their riding but you know, so it's, yeah, if anyone's, yeah, wondering, should, should I do it? And then maybe ask, like, why shouldn't you do it? And, yeah, fair comment, yeah. fair comment. Cammy also mentioned that it taken her a while to find the person that she felt was the right coach for her. And obviously there yeah. is more choice out there now. Like, have you got any advice for people that are looking for some coaching as to, like, how to find something that works for them? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean... It's a good question. Like, I think these days what we, what we have now in the industry is we have certifications and, and that's a good place to start is just look at a coach that's certified first of all. And, and also their level of certification, like in, for example, in the PMBI association, we have four levels of instructor certification and level one is great but the level one is sort of their wheelhouse is teaching beginner to lower intermediate riders and then a level two is teaching sort of strong intermediate to advanced riders maybe introducing things like jumps and drops and high speed cornering and and more technical steeps level three is is more diverse like they'll be able to teach sort of intermediate advanced riders like bike park environment or cross-country kind of um, technical trail environment kids as well. Oh, and then a level four is sort of your higher-end skills coach, your sort of master instructor that's been teaching for teaching skills for like 10, 15 years. Uh-huh. So I think I think a good place to start is like, is the coach certified? Good second place is like, what is the certification? Is it is a good quality certification? And then third is like, what what's the level of certification? So that's, that's probably a good place to start. Is just look at that kind of paperwork a bit. I think the other one is always like, too is being careful of like. I think I mentioned this just because traditionally in the mountain bike space, like prior to certifications, like quite a few of the coaches or the household names for coaches would be ex-racers or pro riders yeah but i think it's good just to mention it's kind of good to just remind everyone like an ex-racer or pro rider doesn't automatically make for a good coach because 
the craft of racing is not the craft of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some X racers, some pro riders are amazing coaches. Um, so it's, it's not sort of a give or take, but it, it's also not a guarantee either. So, um, just being aware of kind of separating like a, a good racer doesn't always make a good coach. And in, in, and in fact, like sometimes the opposite is, is more true. Like if someone isn't a pro rider, what, what we've seen over the last 20 years is like their, their riding skill is a, is a result of a lot more analysis, a lot more hard work because they don't have that sort of racing background or that natural athleticism. So because yeah. they've kind of gone through that process of like, I'm not a natural rider, I'm not a natural athlete, athlete. mountain biking is really hard for me. They've, um, they're almost in a better position to teach it because they can empathize a bit more with a student or they can understand why the student might be doing it that way because they used to do it that way and they know how bad it felt. So, um, you know, it just makes, makes the coach able to relate to the, to the rider, to the student. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking from personal experience for myself, like I'm, I'm a pretty good rider, but again, I'm not, not, you know, I'm not racing world cup level or anything like that. And those athletes just have mad respect for me. I mean, they're just, they work so hard to get where they're at, but their, their sole focus is performance athlete, you know, competition based. Whereas my Mm -hmm. sole focus as a coach is, pedagogy analysis feedback skills like it's really two we're in the same sport but it's two different professions within the sport so i think it's a good good idea just to if you are looking for coaches just to sort of take that moment and think oh hang on am i looking for a a coach or am i looking for a a pro rider and sometimes those two things can come together and they can be awesome but sometimes they're they're kind of separate Um, yeah so i guess that's a a good place to start. And, um, I think the other basic thing is just to find someone that, um, you gel with, like you have a laugh with, like, you know, the coach could be like the best rider in the world, but if they can't make you feel good about your riding, like doesn't matter how good they are on a bike or they could be a really good coach technically and they can analyze your riding and give you the best tips. But if you kind of don't really have a good time with them or you're a bit bored, like, you know that I think it's sometimes we just forget the forget the basics. And a good coach, a good coach for you is someone that you just want to go ride out with and you ride with, and you almost just like become mates. You just have a laugh, and, and you know I always say to my clients like, you know, I'm not an instructor telling you what to do. I'm I'm just a fellow biker. I'm just another mountain biker, and I'm, you're my friend, and I'm just going to try and help you, and we'll try and work on this together. Because I was when I'm coaching, I'm. I'll usually jump in with it with them. Like I'll do the same drill or I'll do the same technique. And half the time it makes my riding better as well. And then the coach kind of, the student kind of connects with that. They're like, Oh wow. Like this is, you know, this is a, it's not necessarily like a top down approach. It's more like a student centric kind of, we're all in this together kind of approach. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that, that helps when the coach hasn't necessarily come from that pro athlete background is there they're more likely able to kind of fit into that mold if you know know what i mean mm-hmm. but but yeah there are probably a few things i look for their certs and then um, find someone that's fun someone that's just good good dude or good girl to hang out with and go ride with yeah and i guess like if you've done coaching in the past and felt it didn't work for you 
that maybe doesn't mean that coaching doesn't work. It just means that you might have found the wrong person, right? Totally. Yeah, I mean, totally. And I, I think that's that's really why the PMBI exists is we're trying to build that kind of global standard for coaching and certain areas where we're more prevalent and there's more coaches. So it's easier to find that consistent kind of coaching qualities and then certain areas there's less of it. Like we definitely have a big drive for the UK in the next year, year or two. Um, and that's a, like, that's one location where we've run a bunch of courses in Wales and Scotland, but we haven't run enough. And, um, so yeah, if you didn't quite find the right coach, then it's, it doesn't mean it's, it's coaching per se. It's just maybe they weren't certified properly or they weren't uh, certified through the right system or um maybe they were but you they just didn't connect with you or they they didn't really listen to the student and, and understand what you need and so yeah don't don't blame it on coaching just just find another coach give it another bash yeah fair play so we often talk especially around this time of the year about like off-season training um, and it's generally strength and conditioning focused um, but I yeah. know you wanted to share some thoughts on what we could be doing in the off season that's more skills focused. So something to help make us better when the trails start to dry out and we're back out there riding much more. Um, mm. How do you want to approach that? Should we break it down a little bit by like rider type or level or like what, how's the best way to dig into some of this stuff and offer some tangible advice that people can go out and, and have a go at? Yeah, man. Yeah. Like I feel like we could, we could probably just, break it down into like three ability categories kind of like maybe like your sort of classic weekend warrior like kind of intermediate rider and then maybe your your sort of slightly more serious discerning kind of uh amateur racer rider and then we could even sort of have the third one where like we we talk about a drill or or a skill or something but then how the pro rider might take that same concept and work okay. on it. Cause a lot of the time, like I'll teach a, a novice rider, something a beginner rider, something like it's their first mountain bike lesson ever. They're on a rental bike, but I'll teach that same drill to like someone that's, you know, racing the whistlery WS or something. And they're doing exactly the same drill. So, um, yeah, it could be kind of cool just to break it down. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, we could do it that way then. So pick some drills and kind of work through them and how they might be applicable to different levels and what that might look like. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. All sweet. right. Where do we start then? Like, is there a, like a fundamental, here's one thing that if you're going to go do it, like this is probably going to help a lot of people. Um, I, it's a good question. And it's like, you've got a thousand different options like which one <laughs> yeah, to yeah. pick but like the, the common one i find for a lot of riders is it's it's so basic people are gonna kind of question it i know they are but like just the emer an emergency stop it's as simple okay. as that like you can do it literally do it in your driveway um or just a quiet road or whatever if you don't have a driveway um but yeah, an emergency stop, like, because what we often see with like intermediate to advanced riders and, and beginners is their body positioning under heavy forces. So braking basically is just an easy way to 
uh, create a lot of those forces. So forces they might experience whilst they're riding on the bike or going through corners or riding down steeps or rock rolls. Um, so an emergency stop is cool because it just straight away it ticks into position and balance and braking skills, which are really the two what we call kind of the, the fundamental skills in in mountain biking. Um, so I guess like a common flaw that we often see is like people will do an emergency stop. And I, I'll do this in our ZEP programs in Whistler, like with our either our cornering clinics or, or whatever we're doing in Whistler, like with, with the average rider we're coaching is we'll, we'll often warm up with like just an emergency stop session. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a cool analysis tool because – you'll maybe just demo something and then get your student to try it a little bit and you're just sort of feeling out where they're at in their riding. And it is so common to see them kind of put the brakes on hard-ish and then just put their weight back because, I don't know, they've probably read it in a magazine or something, like when you (laughs) brake hard, lean back. Yeah. Um, And if you, I mean, I talk about this on our instructor course all the time, but essentially what the power in a brake it relies on grip in the wheel. So the more grip the wheel has, the more power the brake has. It's just sort yep. of basic basic physics. So the brake that's going to make you stop quickest is the front brake because the front wheel gets nice and heavy when you brake, um, which gives it grip, which gives it braking power. Um, so if, if you just think about it from a simple perspective for the minute, if you're moving your weight back, you're basically taking weight away from that front wheel. And you've just reduced the grip and therefore you've reduced the braking power. And then the other thing you've done is no, now you're no longer centered. So your arms are like stretched out. Maybe, maybe your arms are almost straight or they are straight. Well, now you can't steer, you can't pump, you can't lean. Like you're in a pretty static defensive position. You can't really control the bike like that as well as you want. Um, so that's a really good place to start. Just warm up practicing some emergency stops. And your goal is like, first of all, don't skid the rear wheel. Let's build confidence to gradually apply consistent power to the front brake. So over time and, and mileage, just get more comfortable biasing the front brake. Um, but instead of getting back, just get lower and brace and or brace. Mm-hmm. And... Um, for us, like the emergency stop is a nice way to highlight the difference between like connecting and disconnecting with a bike. Cause you can have a nice centered position, but if you're loose and kind of mobile and, and relaxed, if you suddenly, you know, slam on the brakes, what's going to happen to that body position on top of the bike? It, it's just going to flop forward, right? Like it's like a, you know, if you slide it, plate across the table and the plate suddenly stops like all the jelly is just going to fly off the other end right it's it's sort <laughs> yeah. of the same like if you're loose and wobbly on top of the bike and the bike suddenly stops like you're just going to fall over the front but if you're if you you're you're not stiff but if you're strong your muscles are engaged and you're connecting to the bike to make the body and the bike basically kind of one unit well now you're not really a jelly on a plate you're more of like uh i don't know I think of an analogy, but something solid on top of that plate, right? And connect yeah. and stuck to the plate. So I don't know, maybe a box of cereal that's glued to the plate. I'm, I'm pulling something out of my head now. But you slide that that plate across the 
kitchen counter and you stop it like nothing will happen it will just stop like the the box isn't going to slide off the plate and it's kind of the same with like body position in your bike and and trying to approach it from like connecting with the bike versus disconnecting mm-hmm. um so if we take that approach of like instead of moving back maybe get a bit lower engage your muscles get strong you know um, and connect with the bike, you can brake really hard and not move back, but still be strong and stable on the bike and still be fairly mm-hmm. centered. And because you're fairly centered, now you've got more grip on the front wheel in the first place. So the, the front wheels and the front brakes got more power. So you can actually stop quicker anyway. But you're still in that kind of fairly centered position. You might Your bike might be ahead of you slightly a little bit, but you're mostly centered. So now if, if you translate that to the trail or breaking heavily down a steep section, you can, you can still steer the bars. You can still, I don't know, feed the front wheel down into a hole or something. Um, so the emergency stop is a cool place to start and it just helps riders start thinking about, well, first off the braking skill of biasing the front brake and releasing the back brake because as the back wheel gets lighter, there's no point pulling hard on the back brake because the only thing that's going to happen is the back wheel is going to skid, right? Yeah. So it's, it's it really builds that confidence over the front and rear brake ratios and gets riders in that mindset of like how to bias the front brake, how to release the back brake so they can slow down real quick but have no skidding. And then it really gets them thinking about their positioning on the bike and how to maintain a position under load, under forces, um, and, and still, you know, have all the good stuff, the good grip, the good stability and, and the good mobility on the bike whilst they're doing that. So, yeah. So yeah, that's, I mean, emergency stop is super basic, but like, oh man, the amount of riders that we see that do it and yeah, not even just weekend warriors, like amateur races there, they, they just throw their weight back and, and that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, I think that's a good point to mention like we're we're big on the way we coach in zap is it's and pmbia is it's it's not right or wrong it's just pros and cons so what we try and look for is like what's a a more ideal technique that will work more of the time for more people Mm -hmm. and and what's a way of developing a technique to develop a foundation and then we can use when and how much to alter that technique later down the road yeah. So there, there are times for sure where you might break hard and put your weight back, but those are going to be less common than if you can just stay fairly centered and connect and brace and get a bit low. So oh, yeah. that, that way riders are learning not right or wrong, but more like pros and cons. And then now they have options. Um, yeah. But usually when you have a menu of options, there's probably a couple of options you're going to use most of the time. And then there'll be some options that you use pretty rarely. Uh-huh. And so I think that that's a big thing we talk about in our coaching and PMBI is trying to get coaches to move away from this is how you do it. Yeah. And this is how you don't do it. Um, Cause as soon as you throw something out the window, like you've just reduced the list of options for that rider. And there might, there might be one time, you know, it could be one time out of a hundred well, actually, you need that random technique that you hardly ever use, but actually now you need it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. but Yeah, that makes sense. Would you recommend people kind of propping their, their phone camera up somewhere and recording this stuff? Like yeah. it can be kind of hard to 
you yeah. feel like you're doing something on the bike, but then yeah. you see it played back yeah. to you and you're clearly not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the common one is, is people think they're getting more centered, but they're so used to sort of throwing their hips back when they break hard that when they start to get more and more centers and they start to take more of the energy into the upper body and the arms, um, they feel like they're really forward, but they're not. They're just not as far back as they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that that's why you need a coach. Like that's why that's that's one of the biggest values of actually getting an in-person coach is they can actually uh-huh. see you, film you, talk to you, um, and change it there and then on the spot. Because so many times people are like, Oh, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And you're like, Well, yeah, we're 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 getting there. Like we're <laughs> <laughs> here, let me show you, and you'll either give them a, a demo of what they're doing or you'll give them a bit of video and i'll say like oh wow i thought i was really forward it's like no it's just you were so far back now you're just getting more centered and it yeah yeah okay and are there progressions of that like emergency stop drill for like yeah. as you improve or for, for riders at a higher level totally yeah so you i mean it's like everything can bike and it's just take it gradually and we use the three c's a lot of the time like if you're not comfortable, you know, once, once you're comfortable, you feel like the technique's fairly correct and you're doing it consistently and those three C's are together, comfortable, consistent, correct. And then, then you can kind of increase the challenge. So whether that's do it faster, do it with more intensity or do it on a different slope. Like once you feel the three C's, you can sort of move on to the next level for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. But yeah, I mean, a good place to start is, for those intermediate riders, just start with trying not to skid and trying to feel more comfort with the front brake and very simply just trying to shorten your stopping distance. And then for like that amateur, I guess, amateur racer, like try and doing it with zero rear brake and just really trying to nail down that stopping distance. Um, and you can even start to do it with varied positions. Like we often talk about like, when you can do an emergency stop and be tall and braced and when you want to get low and braced. And you might see it if you watch some World Cups, you watch some of the guys and girls cross the finish line. Sometimes you'll see them do this like real tall braced position that chin's almost over the stem and they kind of do a stoppy. Um, And again, it's not right or wrong. It's just building your toolkit as a rider as you get more and more experienced. As soon as you go down the right or wrong approach, you just – you, you you narrow down that those options and that toolkit. So trying some emergency stops kind of tall and braced or tall air and braced and then lower and braced and feeling like, well, what terrain, where, where would I want to be low and braced, like a mm-hmm. steep rock roll? I'm probably going to want to be low and braced. But maybe crossing the fish line, the terrain's flat or just stopping quickly when there's really good grip, you could be tall and braced. Um, so a bit of variety for that amateur Racer. And then I think like moving up to pros, like I say pros, but a lot of the time pros are just amateur racers that are better at going faster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like they're more consistent at going faster. And I don't mean to sort of uh, talk badly about that, but like what I guess what I'm saying is like a lot of the, the really successful pros is technically they are a lot stronger than the amateur racer, but there are some pros that, they've they've nailed a bunch of the performance factors but technically they haven't progressed a huge amount beyond like Uh a really strong expert rider 
Okay. Um, there's some expert riders, if you flip it around, there's some expert riders that have more skills and are technically stronger than some pro riders. It's just the mm-hmm. pro riders have another element. They have something going on that makes them better at racing and, yeah, yeah. and, and getting results. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you want to sort of, you know, intermediate amateur pros, like a good one for pros is build it into stoppies. Like we always see Bernard Kerr, like stoppy, uh, his stoppy videos and landing into stoppies and which was super sick and amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I wish I could like, I started trying to learn that last summer actually on a line, like landing in a stoppy and it, it freaked the hell out of me, but it's, <laughs> let's, let's just say that's a work in progress. But I mean, that's the obvious one for pros. It's like, can you do an emergency stop in like on really slippery terrain or steeper pitches, but still maintain that form? Can you sort of jump into an emergency stop? Like, do it, you don't have to jump into a stoppy, but can you kind of land in an emergency stop when you land? Mm-hmm. Um, or then building into stoppy. So most of these drills, it's like not it's not hard to sort of have a bit of creativity and think, well, how can I take this basic drill and just make it harder and harder for me as as you know as, as you progress? Try it sitting, try and standing. Like yeah. sometimes I love teaching people when most she stops sitting down because they realize just how much strength and stability they have because they're so connected with the bike. And if the grip's really good, they can, you can do a pretty, if your arms are strong, your upper body's strong and you're sitting down and you just use the front brake and the grip is really good. You can do a pretty decent emergency stop sitting down. Yeah. Um, so again, it's just getting people to think about concepts. It's not like right or wrong. It's like, here's a concept. I'm trying to stop quickly here's some skills like braking and position and balance. And then how do these two skills work together to allow me to do this drill of an emergency stop in different ways? Um, and that's where you create, create a more intelligent kind of autonomous riders by giving them those options. And a, and a good coach can kind of guide them through that progression Yeah, safely. I mean, that's the whole role of a coach is to take, lower the risk and minimize the risk uh, while still giving the rider the freedom to try these options to, to ultimately build their, their toolkit, their technique. Yeah. And I guess we should say like, even if you're just out playing about on the driveway, doing stuff like this, like there is still a reasonable chance of going over the bars or crashing. So the usual like helmet pads, gloves is, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're really worried, you can always put like a crash pad down and then you can, (laughs) you could, but, (laughs) I mean, joking aside, like, it's crazy. I mean, I've been teaching this stuff for, for years and I, I don't know if I've ever taught, ever had anyone go over the handlebars teaching emergency stops. Even, even when you're like really pushing the envelope and trying to get them to stop in a, a shorter distance. But, and it's all, again, it's just using the three C's. Like start with an easy step. If you think it's easy, then just in your head, like treat it as a warm up. Like I'm going to try and start from, say, I don't know, I'm going to go 15 miles an hour and I'm going to try and stop in a 10 meter window. I mean, that's fairly easy. Mm-hmm. So just start there and just start with, you know, and treat it as a warm up. And then, okay, that was super easy. So I'm going to do a five meter window now. And then, okay, that was kind of easy. Do a couple of times. All right, four meter window and just. As long as the rider is smart and and aware of, you know, practice is is um, good practice is all about good technique. Like 
a lot of people say practice, you know, practice makes perfect, but it, it doesn't. Practice makes permanent. So it's only perfect practice that's, that makes perfection. So it's, yeah. it's about how you practice and being smart with your practice and just simply going out and doing some emergency stops and not really thinking about it won't necessarily get the result you want. But if you're thinking about your positioning, your braking, and then gradually building the challenge level, then that that process, that that progression is what will challenge your rider. And it, I would say emergency stops is like, you, you can see it even in World Cup riders, those that I could probably pick off a bunch of World Cup riders, XC or downhill, and, and um, you can probably pick the ones that aren't comfortable with stoppies. And, you know, I, there was actually a rider on a course last summer that, like, they used to ride World Cups and they'd never done an endo before. So that's a good mm -hmm. example. Yeah. It's like, wow, it's like World Cup level rider and they'd never done a simple endo. Yeah. Um, just the basics, right? Just the fundamentals. And you can yeah. see, like, you know, on the trail, it's super comfortable with steep terrain, but their habit was moving back. So teaching them emergency stops. It's kind of like a building block to endos. Like eventually we went into endos. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was a perfect example of like, let's just strip it back to pure basics. And that's what good skills-based training is. And that's where driveway drills can be so helpful because you just take away all the terrain, take away all the challenge. It's like minimum terrain. And then you get that kind of maximum skill development because yeah. because the train's so easy you can really be creative and you can really kind of push the skills and that's where you you create that that change in the technique and that skill development nice okay so we've got emergency stops are there other like driveway drills that rate highly in your list of things for people to have a go at yeah i think i mean i think the other one is like a progression from emergency stops a little bit but it's this is particularly good if you're like eight years old and you just got a, uh, your first mountain bike, um, riding downstairs. Okay. Like if, if everybody like, I don't, I don't know if you're like this, but every time I'm on my bike and I'm like riding past a set of stairs, there's that little boy in me <laughs> that just wants to ride down the <laughs> stairs. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I haven't really grown up from that, but, um, <laughs> riding downstairs is, you can use it for similar things. Um, so again, some of the common things we see in all riders is their ability to stay fairly centered and strong on the bike through varied terrain. Um, confidence with the front brake, uh, especially where we live in Whistler, you know, it's a lot of steep terrain and we, it's one of the most common things we're teaching is people getting more comfortable with the front brake. But beyond that, like just being comfortable maintaining a position when the terrain is rough Mm -hmm. so if if the train is rough and or steep the classic thing we see in in riders at, at all levels really is eventually their weight will start to go their position will start to go back and or they'll start to get tense so yeah better riders might not necessarily put their weight back but they might start to sort of you know freeze up and get a bit bit panicky and stiff so riding downstairs there's a few things you you know riders of all levels can do like for the intermediate rider will often say like just practice rolling down a set of stairs but keeping centered and mobile so i quite like that word mobile because people often say keep relaxed but if you're too relaxed then you become a bit too jelly and then your body position gets a bit floppy and you 
it's easy for your body position to get sucked over the back wheel. Like, yeah, I often I often talk about like there's a black hole behind the bike and it's constantly trying to suck you back. Um, so you want to avoid being sucked into that black hole. So just rolling downstairs, but being centered and mobile through it. Um, you've obviously got to choose your set of stairs. Like, don't be an idiot in the middle of town. You know. <laughs> middle of a shopping center riding down a set of stairs or something <laughs> but find a s- fairly quiet set of stairs somewhere and and not too steep and a nice run out from it that doesn't sort of cross straight onto a road and and just practice riding down stairs and feeling centered and mobile where you're relaxed um and you're sort of that happy medium between not super relaxed but not stiff um and then that builds up to then ride down those same set of stairs but now track the brakes. So you're going to have fairly even power on the front and back brakes, like just consistent power, um, just enough to control your speed down the stairs, but where you can feel that kind of resistance. And again, that's going to train you to feel what it's like to have the brakes on in rough terrain um, without your your weight suddenly just going all the way through there to the back of the bike where you get stuck mm-hmm. in that defensive position. Um, so that's a, that's a s- similar um, goal there. And the other outcome of that is position and breaking, uh, position and balance and breaking, but the third skill is pressure. So it really gets riders comfortable with sort of absorbing bumps, but whilst they're absorbing bumps and trying to be relaxed with absorbing, you know, shock through their arms and legs they're still maintaining a fairly centered position so a lot of riders they might sort of loosen up and get relaxed because it's rough but then their position collapses back so it's trying to separate your position from your suspension okay it's a good way good way of look, looking at it um yeah. so so you know if you translate that to the trail there's a bit of a real rough section coming up i want to be fairly relaxed so that you know my arms and legs soak it up and they work like suspension but I don't want my legs and my core to be so relaxed that my hips just collapse back and I end up in the back seat as soon as I get a compression or an impact from the terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps riders just sort of separate position from pressure, basically. Yeah. And, and dealing f- with pressure. If let's say you're not able to film this for any reason, you're doing the stairway drill, is there a feeling to look out for that indicates your hips have drifted back? Yeah. Like, we, we'll often do this where you can you can even do this just to, again on a flat piece of terrain, but like ride ride around in a loop or a, you know just up and down your street, whatever it is, and just stand on your bike in your kind of classic neutral position, just standing up pedals level, chin over stem, kind of fairly tall and and uh, relaxed on the bike, and then just move the bike underneath you, like move it forwards move it backwards and find that position where you can stand up on the bike and, and release your fingers off the grip. Mm-hmm. Um, so your hands are still on the grips, obviously, but that usually is pretty much your, your centered balanced position on the bike. And then as you, for example, if you go to move the bike ahead, so your weight kind of goes back over the back wheel, everyone will notice it. You, you have to grip tight because if you don't grip tight in that position, like what's, what's going to happen? You're just going to fall off the back. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then vice versa, if you kind of pull and tuck the bike underneath you, so your weight's kind of really over the front wheel, 
you have to grip quite tight and you, there's a lot of stress in like your triceps and shoulders. So just that simple drill of like moving the bike fore and aft underneath you will teach you that like your, your grip strength is relative to your position uh, on the bike. So if you're going down the stairs and suddenly you feel like you're gripping really tight, chances are your weight's too far back. You know, or yeah. if you're going down the stairs and you feel like, um, you know, let's say you're not breaking down the stairs, you're just rolling down some stairs and you feel like yeah, there's a lot of weight in that front, you know, your shoulders, your arms, then chances are you're a little bit front heavy. So um, there's basic drills you can do like that in, on the, in your driveway just to help you to feel those tactile elements of when am I centered and when am I too far forward or too far mm-hmm. back and, and again, it's like those can actually be useful tools because there might be times where you actually want to be forward on the bike down the road in your riding career. Like I want to be front wheel heavy for whatever reason. And it will teach you like if I want to be front wheel heavy, I want to feel that shoulder pressure or that pressure in my arms. Or if I want to yeah. be rear wheel heavy, like I'm going to manual, you know, I want to start to feel the pressure in my fingers because I am kind of off the back of the bike. Um so yeah, that's that's a simple one, and then you can progress that. Like, for, if you talk about amateur races or pros, like you can just practice going riding down a set of stairs, stopping halfway down, and then starting again. So now they're actually trying to stop in that really rough terrain and start again, um, or even just crawling down a set of stairs. Like, see how slowly you can ride down the stairs, but still stay mobile, still stay fairly centered and relaxed whilst managing those braking forces so again you know these first two drills of like emergency start rolling downstairs they're just they're just working on position and balance and braking um and then pressure control as well for the for the stair riding so and then pros like you could even like get if you're if you think if you're a pro or you think you're a pro like you could practice just um depending on where you are and it's safe in your arm it's safe like jumping into a set of stairs and feeling what it's like to uh, land in that kind of rough terrain. Um, mm-hmm. um, for example, again, you're just sort of playing it smart, making good decisions. But like, if I can already do X, you know, what's the next step? What's Y? What's the next step after this? And yeah, as long as, long as people are increasing the challenge a small bit every time, the, the risk comes in when people start going from like ladder, you know, you know, rung three on the ladder to rung six on the ladder. As long as you go from like run to three to three and a half or from rung three to rung four on the ladder, so to speak, you're usually pretty good. But Nice. Let's yeah. let's pick up one or two more kind of basic drills then that you think add value. And then maybe we can talk a bit about kind of taking some of those skills and transferring them to the trail and the mindset of like, riding with a progression focus that sort of stuff are there are there other drills that really stand out for you yeah i think i well i mean i guess the two options would be slow tight turns slash track stands is is a great one for all sorts of kind of um, slow speed balance um, even terrain awareness rotation skills Um, and then the other one would be just a basic cone drill um Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, like just set up some cones uh, in the driveway or on a quiet road or an empty field um, and just practice some slalom with some cones. Like those two are massive, massive tactics. Like 
and that and that's what I think like in off season it's a really good time to work on your skills because you might not necessarily want to go out and ride for an hour and a half in the muddy woods and then clean all your gear but you've got the itch right you want to you want to just get out on your bike and get some fresh air and you're fed up with the dark dark winter hours um unless you live in australia which which is pretty sweet (laughs) right now (laughs) Um, but even in australia the day like i was I was going to go on a road ride and it was like 30 degrees. I was like, oh man, it's really hot. So I just went out the front of the house and I just played around on my bike for 25 minutes, just doing some skill stuff. And yeah, it, it kind of got that, that, uh, urge to ride my bike out of me, but I didn't sweat in the sun for two hours at 30 degrees. So, um, sounds good. But yeah, so, yeah. slalom stuff is yeah. I, I, all about the slalom stuff. There's, there's so much skill development you can do with some flat ground, good grip, and a few slalom cones, like it's it's crazy how much you can do with that. Are there like how would you talk people through the fundamentals then? Because it's I mean you could just go ride around some cones. Is that enough? Like, yeah. or are you trying to focus on something while you're doing it to help ensure that you're, I guess, getting better at, at the whole yeah. thing? The first place we start is position and balance. So a lot of the time people will bring out slalom. Um, drills or cones and they'll start talking about the, the typical kind of mountain bike skills like bike body separation and leaning the bike underneath you or or they'll talk about like rotating the hips point the belly button into the turn and point your knees into the turn and that that's all awesome stuff and we will definitely dig into that but a lot of time we'll start with position and like can you actually ride through the slalom course however you set it up um and stay centered and stay mobile because most of our cornering lessons like most of the time it's we've we've got to address positional issues on on the bike through corners before we look at um any of the other stuff like leaning the bike or rotating the hips um and again that's that's something you can see at amateur races even even world cup level there's they're all really good at leaning the bike underneath them or even twisting their hips. But if you're too far forward or if you're too far back at a certain point in the turn, that's, that's the skill that's going to have the biggest impact on your cornering speed at that moment. Um, so yeah, just a good place to start, set up a slalom, um, pick a good speed where it's, it's not too easy to ride through the slalom, but it's not too challenging. It's kind of that right, I always think if it's fun, but not scary. So if it's fun to ride through it, then it's a good challenge level. If it's scary, then maybe you're going too fast or maybe the cones are a bit too tight. Um, And then just see if you can stay fairly centered, chin fairly close to the stem uh, through all of those corners. And then once you've checked that list, then you can start building into some leaning of the bike or technical terms angulation which i don't really like but just le- how you can lean the bike more underneath you and create more separation so position would be a good place to start you can get your mates to film you and and double check like is your weight collapsing back mm-hmm. are you staying fairly centered people will do some funny things with their position like sometimes they'll just be kind of tall and a lot of the time they won't hinge at the waist and get their chest low enough through corners. Okay. And then if your chest isn't low enough, your arms are kind of straight. If you think about mm-hmm. it, if you've got like a tall shoulders, tall chest through a corner, there's no, not much range of movement in the arms. And that means you're not going to be able to lean the bike underneath you as much. 
So again, it's, it's another example of how your position is going to impact those, those other skills anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, are you centered? Are you low enough? Um, are you low the right way? That's the common one. People will get low, but they'll, they'll bend their knees and their hips will collapse down and back. Mm-hmm. rather than like keep your legs initially speaking at least like keeping your legs a little more stacked a little more neutral and then you're going to hinge at the waist and bring the shoulders down bend your elbows so that your back becomes flatter yeah um <clears throat> so we we often say like to get low hinge at the waist bend the elbows first and then if you then if you need to get even lower, then you can bend the knees. But at least from that sort of hinged position, they've got they'll then when they get lower, they'll stay centered. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time it's just biomechanics. Like if a rider is standing up and the first body part that they bend is their knee, a lot of the time like the femur will move back, the hips will move back from that knee joint, and that it will start their weight moving back. Yeah. So we're not saying don't bend the knees. It's more just like when do you bend the knees and how do you get low? And it's understanding those biomechanics. Yeah, and I guess there's this is where there's some level of kind of connection into the whole strength and conditioning piece as well, right? Like learning to hip hinge properly, like deadlifts and exercises that help, I guess, program yeah. and improve that movement pattern and strengthen that movement pattern so that you can hold that position on the bike. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, I mean, that's a great example of why you wanted to – these kind of basic skills drills in uh, in the winter or even just through the summer is it it's exactly what you said is it's building that muscle memory that that pattern so you in that easy environment you're just doing those repeated movements so that they're autonomous on the trail and usually what happens in every in any sport is as soon as the rider gets challenged um, bad habits are the first thing to come back. So the more time you spend with this perfect practice, creating good movement patterns and building that muscle memory, the less likely when you're challenged, those bad habits are going to come back. And that will happen at all levels of riding. That will happen for you and me. That will happen for a beginner. It will happen for a pro rider. And and that's the value here in, in a lot of these drills is you're just spending, you know, if you want to get better technically, you need more mileage and you need more mileage doing the right movements. And um, this is what this stuff does. And it's kind of fun yeah. too. It sort of sounds kooky. Like I'm just going to do some stops in my driveway and ride downstairs and weave around in the road. Like, But when you get into them, like, man, it's, it's a lot of fun. Definitely. Yeah. And doing it with a little group of mates as well, I'm guessing like adds yeah. a bit of fun into it. And like, if you wanted to yeah. get a set of cones between a few of you, like what, what are you searching for? Is there like a, what are they called? Yeah, I guess you're talking about those little round kind of dots. Are you? Or? Yeah. There's like, um, a lot of the time that like they're on Amazon for like, uh, soccer cones and they're just fairly okay. flat. You can ride over them. Like you can fold them up, chuck them in your backpack um or failing that you can just use like you know rocks sticks right yeah (laughs) um uh yeah small babies fruit whatever you want just whatever (laughs) objects you've got lying around you know just make a slalom course and get some mates together and and the main thing is just is just uh like mentally like pick a technical focus like just riding cones for fun and trying to do it faster will be a lot of fun and you might get better at it 
but you'll end up just getting better at what you're currently doing. And yeah. if you want to improve your skills, you need, you usually need to identify like, what are you currently doing and what do you need to change? Mm-hmm. And then you need to have purposeful practice to change that one or two things. So you have to identify like what, what's my, what's my bad habit. Um, I collapse a bit too far back or I bend my knees too much or I get a bit too far forward or I stay too tall, whatever positional thing it, it might be through the corners. And then it's going into that, that fun session with your mates with like, right, this time I'm going to try and hinge the waist a little more and get my shoulders a little lower, whatever it is. And then that's going to be your focus for the next 20 minutes to try and change because i always say like changing if you're if you're doing good skills development your writing should feel uh worse or better (laughs) Uh, like i always say like if your writing feels worse great if it feels better great because then you know you've changed something okay and so if it does feel worse like obviously that initially that's a bit frustrating like oh my god it's I feel like I'm thinking about this and I'm just getting worse at this. Like this sucks. And then people often give up, but that's just a sign that a you're focusing and B you're trying to do something different. So embrace that. We kind of often in coaching, we talk about like peaks and valleys. Like you're just breaking your skills down. You're, you're stripping back to fundamentals. And a lot of the time when you do that, it does feel worse because you are, you're no longer doing something autonomously. You're having to think mm. about doing something. And that, like, that often in itself makes it feel worse. So if I get a rider that's a bit bummed out, like, oh, my God, my cornering feels like pants. I'm like, sweet, that's great. I'm really <laughs> happy to hear that, that, that you feel worse right now. And then I'll kind of explain, like, why is that Why is that actually a good sign? Yeah. Um, and then they're kind of like, oh, okay, I didn't, didn't really think about it like that. You kind of reframe it. And then sure enough, like, you, you stick at it. You, you keep encouraging the rider it always happens what comes after every valley is is the next mountain the next peak is a bit of a cheesy cliche but it's it's just an easy way to kind of highlight that skills breakdown and that process how that would look um yeah as long as it doesn't feel the same if your writing kind of feels roughly the same that sucks because then you haven't you probably haven't focused enough you haven't found the thing that needs working on um and or you certainly haven't changed anything or you haven't changed anything to an extent where it's making a difference. Yeah. So these drills can and will be fun, but they have to be focused as well, right? That you have to have a yeah. conscious yeah. like mission within them to like, right, this yeah. is what I'm going to try and change. I've seen yeah. this in a little video clip I've made or I've felt yeah. this. I'm going to try and change it. Yeah. yeah. And so much of it, as, as I mean, as you're probably getting to, like so much of the theme always goes back to that first skill position and balance. But um yeah, and I mean, just doing this, just doing these drills. A lot of it, you're gonna. It, it's like that natural experiment. You're gonna feel when it when it's right, and you get a lot of the time. We'll say to our students, like, they'll often try something, and then they'll ask us, like, did, how did it look? How, was that better? And I'll often sort of turn it around on the student, like, well, well, let's start with how did it feel for you? Like, did it feel different? Did it feel better? And I'll try and get the student to do a bit of self-analysis, a bit of self-learning, because um, that's that's an important piece of the puzzle. But yeah, slalom, yeah. slalom's a rad man. Like you can learn so much through that. And then yeah, I could probably talk about that one all day. Like digging into how to use cones and slalom for 
angulation and rotation and these kind of higher level cornering skills. But uh, it's a good one to start is just checking in with that body position through the corners. And that's, it's so common. Like you'll see it on YouTube videos or mountain bike magazine articles, like how to corner. And they either gloss over or kind of forget the fundamental skill of cornering, which is how are you standing on the bike? Where's your position mm-hmm. on the bike? Um, yeah. Okay. So how do we then, like, let's say the trails are drying out, the rain stopped, and uh, we want to go back out onto the trails, but we want to take these skills with us and kind of transfer them into a more familiar um, riding environment. Like, how do we how do we do that without, I guess, re- risking reverting back to what we've been programmed to do for so long and try and keep these gains or even improve further yeah i think i think a good one is um just consistency so if if you think about like even physical conditioning right like if you do a bunch of strength and conditioning through the winter and then it it comes to spring or summer and you start to mountain bike more with your mates and um if you stop doing some of that strength and conditioning then you might be physically riding your mountain bike a bit more through the spring and summer and fall, but the it, it might end up that your strength and conditioning is actually going to get worse through the summer because you'll often see it like in the winter, people are more, there's nothing really else to do. So they get a lot more focused on their physical training because mm-hmm. uh, it's the one thing that's sort of motivating them. And it's kind of the same with skills. Like I think when, because it, it depends where you are in the world and if you're listening to this in Australia or, or the UK, like the climates are so different. So, you know, some places you can mountain bike year-round and, and like for me in Whistler, like pretty much November hits, the bike goes away and it stays in the shed until kind of April unless, unless I travel to Australia or New Zealand or something. Um but yeah, I think a good place to start is just keep it consistent. So even if you are mountain biking more and you're going back on, onto the trails, like still find the time to chuck in these driveway drills or car park drills. Um, you can do it whilst you're meeting, waiting for your mates to show up at the car park. You can do it on the ride home. Like a lot of the time I'll practice wheelies and endos just on the valley trail on the way home. It's easy every time I get to a a road crossing i'll just practice an endo and that's my front brake confidence front brake skills that's my body position under forces um so a lot of this stuff i think you can just continue to do all all year round um whether it's in a car park in your driveway on the way to a ride on the way home from a ride um so that's a good place to start it's consistency and then i think when you're on the trail is is um, a bit of Star Wars, but like patience, young Padawan, right? Like um, people get really excited to try things. Like, oh, I've been doing this and, you know, I can do a, and maybe they've been practicing bunny hops all winter at home and or something. And they then go to apply that maneuver on the trail and, and doing a bunny hop with, you know, bunny hopping over your mate in the driveway or over some sticks or something. It's a whole different game to then trying it on the trail. So just allowing yourself time to learn how to apply the same trick or the same skill, but 
on a different trail in a different environment and mm-hmm. at a different speed. So a lot of the time when you take something from a car park or a driveway and you take it to the trail, most of the time you're now trying a similar thing uh, on a different speed. And I like the three S's, like speed, shape, and size. Like uh-huh. the terrain might have a different shape to it. The, the feature might be a different size. Uh, you might be traveling at a different speed. These are kind of just a few variables that might happen. So just respecting that, just because you can do it in the driveway or the car park, like just be aware that like, well, hang on, like what might be some subtle things I'll need to change if I'm going to try that same thing, but um, on that downhill in my local woods or in that skills park that's now opened because um, the snow's melted or, or whatever it is. So just be patient and don't rush it um almost like start the progression again like well let me check out this feature let me roll through it first let me roll through it a bit quicker without doing the skill or without doing the maneuver and then so i think those two things are probably a good place to start it's just be consistent with the skills development like keep it going mm-hmm. through the summer don't just kind of rely on trail riding to continue that skill development you've you've still got to put in the work um and then just be patient with applying it on the, the trail. Don't, don't yeah. assume Do you, that the, the perfect bunny hop in the driveway doesn't always translate to the perfect bunny hop, um, you know, when there's a log over the trail or something. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you think your focus needs to shift a little bit when you're trying to put some of these things into practice on the trail? Because I guess a lot of people listening, like we ride – with sort of an intention of trying to go fast, like it's a speed focus and we're tapping into everything that our body kind of already knows how to do, whether that's right or wrong. If you want to become more cognitive of the way you're riding and bring in some of this like body position through a turn or whatever it is you've been focusing on, do you feel you need to slow down a bit, like back off a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Like I, we, I just did an episode of that on um, on a new podcast I just launched before Christmas. But um, that's a key piece of your training is is understanding. Like if I want to do something fast, I first need to do it smoothly. Mm-hmm. And and that's something we do a lot with Zap and Whistler with our coaching programs and especially our long-term coaching programs. Well, a big part of it is like developing the skills and the technical skills in the riders and then – almost um, developing that training program or that progression where we've got the skills, we want to apply them in this scenario, like at this race or on this terrain um, or at this speed. And it's just how do we take the skill from this fairly easy scenario and apply it at a much higher level of performance. And that yeah. that's really coaching in a nutshell is just because I can do A doesn't mean I can do A all the time. Uh so yeah being patient and it is quite common in mountain biking like you mentioned like a lot of people i'd say the two ways that mountain bikers generally try and challenge themselves is ride harder terrain or go faster yeah it's like it's like mountain bikers in a way they kind of think that's the only two options for getting better on a bike (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like i can ride blues so obviously to get better i need to ride blacks right um, or whatever, you know, I, I came top 20. So obviously the next thing to do is to come top 10. Uh, 
and that's not wrong, but it again, it's just all about options and building your toolkit. And as skills coaches, one of the most common things we're getting our riders to do is to do everything um, with more technical proficiency, uh, and that translates to doing everything with more um, efficiency and doing it smoother. Because once you're doing something more efficient and you're doing it smoother, chances are usually that means you're now also more consistent and you're doing it faster. So you're creating the same outcomes, but in a much more sustainable, effective way. If you take a rider and just like try and get them to do stuff faster, try and ride this trail faster or whatever it might be, they, they might, we might be able to find some ways to make them faster, but if we haven't improved their efficiency or their technique, or their smoothness, chances are they'll be fast, but at some point they'll crash. So a huge part of technical skills coaching is is efficiency, smoothness, technical accuracy, and then mm-hmm. the outcome of that is you're faster anyway. Yeah, 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 without trying to go faster. Yeah, yeah. okay, makes sense. Yeah. Before, before we wrap up, I want to talk about learning from videos because there's so much that like, you kind of... Uh, mentioned it earlier but there's so much out there on youtube um from people of different levels of ability and different backgrounds and different qualifications or lack of um what are your thoughts on that like how should people approach learning from from videos on youtube are there particular things you'd recommend yeah good question chris um youtube this this is we could do a whole episode on on youtube and the pros and cons of coaching on youtube um i mean the good the good news is is like content on youtube as far as mountain bike skills coaching goes is better than it's ever been so that's it's always good to start with a positive like that that's the good news like people are more certified people are more aware of good coaching bad coaching you know technique in 2022 versus technique in 1993 like I read a mountain bike magazine last year, big US publication. I won't put any names. And they were still teaching people to lean their weight back when they go downhill. Like, like it's crazy how some of that stuff left over from the 90s is like still lingering around. And like, as a mountain bike coach, you're like, holy cow, like that, that stuff still exists. But, but generally speaking, YouTube is is better and, and obviously Instagram's mm. a huge media resource now where people are turning to um you know reels on Instagram and content yeah. on Instagram for skills coaching as well. So I think the the development of the the certification side of the industry has had a massive impact on that kind of online content. Um which is great. But you know, having said that, there is still a lot of um as I'm sure most listeners are aware, there's there's still quite a lot of nonsense on uh, on YouTube and mm-hmm. Instagram, and it and it really just depends on like what's the source, and it, it's it's a common theme these days, right? Like if you're reading news on social media or Facebook, like everyone's kind of being told like, well, just check out the source. Where's that coming from? Is it true or not? And it, it's the same approach, I think, for skills coaching. Just you know, research that coach, research that channel a little bit. Are they certified? How long have they been certified for? I mean, there is there is a bit of a challenge right now where like it's so easy to make this content. I mean, you can do a level one instructor course, pass in three days and start building this channel and 
we always say the level one PMBI instructor certification is it's a great course. It's we're really happy with it, and it's it's a great start into the world of teaching skills in mountain biking. But it is just a level one course. Like it's kind of like you pass your driving lesson license. You're not the best driver in the world, but you're good enough to go drive your car and not kill people. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of the same thing for a level one instructor. Like you can do a safe, structured beginner, novice, lower intermediate lesson, teach some basic skills. Um, but there's a big difference between that and then I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to start producing content online. Um, you know, it's a bit like if you if you suddenly pass chef school, would you start your own restaurant the next day? Like you wouldn't, right? And like if you were watching YouTube for like cooking advice you wouldn't be watching a youtube channel from someone that finished chef school the day before or the the year before you'd be watching yeah. like jamie oliver or some famous chef because you you would go to the best right mm -hmm. so i think that's that's just i guess that's one way of looking at it is again just looking at like who's this coach what's their background how certified are they are they a level one or a level three or a level four certified coach? Like there's, there's a big difference there. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing with any video stuff and we've, we've talked about it a lot at length in our, in our coaching company zap, like, cause it's there, right? Like you run a coaching business, there's potential to make money from online mountain bike coaching. I mean, it's, it's kind of a no brainer. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's sort of the way of the world right now. But for us, we, we're big believers on what's the most effective way of coaching. And and teaching is, at the heart of teaching, is teaching isn't telling someone what to do. And teaching is a two-way process. Like these are the guiding principles of effective teaching. So as soon as you go to a video format, it becomes one-way communication, which inherently becomes just telling people what to do. And yep. so it becomes like the simplest in a way, for lack of a better term, like the poorest version of coaching is, is online coaching. And it might be mm -hmm. the best, you know, the other thing I've seen is like, you might have the best coach out there create a how to video, but it doesn't get as many likes or hits or whatever, because the audio quality is lower or, um, their presentation style on the camera isn't as good. But so it, in that sense, like it, if you sort of flip it around, it's like the best coach doesn't always necessarily mean they're going to make the best how-to videos and vice versa. You can have someone that isn't certified that would make this really popular online video because they have a great presence on camera, good editing, good, good quality camera. So it, it's an easier way for people to appear as a good coach when – and an experienced coach when they might not necessarily be as good or as experienced as they come off on camera. Whereas in the real world, if, if you're working with a rider or an athlete for two hours or a day, or, you know, some of our camps in Whistler, are, you know, that would do like a two day camp or a one week camp. We used to do like multi-week camps in with skills training camps in Whistler, like a three-week skills uh, skills training camp in Whistler. We currently do like a three-week instructor training camp in Whistler. So when you're working with a rider for that long, there's no faking it. You can't you can't get away from away from it. You're either a really good coach or you're not. So, um, so I think there's some other things to consider, I guess. And 
for us, I think we've always just gone back to like the best form of coaching is is in person. And that's that's kind of what I've personally stuck with. And it's not to say there isn't value in online coaching. I think I think there is if it's done well by the right people. It can be an amazing resource for mm-hmm. riders because the reality is not all riders can either afford coaching or even access it. Like they might not be a coach in their area, for example. So yeah. I think it's a brilliant resource and I'm really happy to see more good quality coaching coming online. It's just, it's just being aware of like all of this stuff. It's not, it's not right or wrong. It's just kind of pros and cons. And I think the other con of online coaching is obviously there isn't really any analysis or feedback. And that's such a huge component of someone's learning is someone watching you and saying, all right, we've, we've gone through this info on how to corner better or, or how to tackle this drop. And I can give you a performance review right now. Like, what are you doing well? And what are some things we can keep improving? And that's what changes people's riding, especially um, more efficiently and more effectively, is that, that sort of two-way coach-student um, relationship and that, that analysis and feedback, which yeah. obviously is much harder to do if you're watching YouTube videos. No, totally fair. So if people are, um, I guess, interested to look into some either some coaching in Whistler or to get some qualifications and to work with PMBIA, where are the best places for them to look to find out a bit more about what you're up to? Yeah, they can they can just find us, um, zapmtbcamps.com. So that's, that's my coaching company in Whistler, and that's where, um, yeah, we do anything and everything beginning to, to expert to pro and cross country to downhill, um, you know, do, do a bunch of different things in Whistler. So yeah, zepmountainbikecamps.com or Instagram is just at zep, Z-E-P, M-T-B camps. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the zep side. That's kind of our coaching side in Whistler. And if people are interested in instructor certifications and getting into teaching, it's, it's awesome. It's the, funnest job in the world they can um check us out on uh, pmbia.org or uh instagram is just um uh at pmbi association on instagram perfect yeah nice one yeah i'll stick some links in the show notes so uh people can find that nice and easily yeah thanks paul it's been super interesting chatting finding out more about your uh your career so far and the work you're doing and there's some super handy tips in there i think i'll be off uh, later today in the drive doing some uh, emergency <laughs> stop drills and seeing how that yeah. looks but yeah thanks for your time man and uh yeah i hope everything goes well for you awesome thanks chris and uh, yeah really appreciate you having me on on the show big big fan no of downtime so it's yeah it's an honor to be on here thanks mate awesome thanks paul take care all right cheers mate All right, that's it for this episode with Paul. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks to Zep Mountain Bike Camps for supporting this episode. If you're looking for top-class coaching in Whistler or Okanagan, then hit them up over at zepmtbcamps.com. That's Z-E-P-M-T-B-Camps.com. Also, a big thank you to Stash Products. If you want to upgrade your bike storage to something that's convenient, easy to access, yet still saves you space, then the Stash Space Rail is the one for you. Due to its incredible popularity, there are no discounts right now, but we do have something special for downtime listeners. If you spend £200 or more on a Space Rail system, then downtime listeners get a free set of pedal wraps in their choice of size, or a pedal wrap clip or a beanie, worth up to £20. Just add them to your cart and use the code DOWNTIME at the checkout. 
You've got until the end of February to make the most of that code. And if you want to save more, then there is currently free shipping on all systems over £250 until the end of January 2023. Check them out over at stashedproducts.co.uk. That's S-T-A-S-H-E-D products.co.uk and use the code downtime to get your freebies. There's a lot more awesome content coming your way over the course of 2023. So make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or head into downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a bit extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that by telling your friends about the show, sharing the podcast on your social media, grabbing yourself some merch at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop, subscribing to our biannual mountain bike journal, Downtime EP at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP, or leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That's it for today. We'll have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride.